Hi, it's David Freudberg from Humankind on Public Radio. Stay tuned. Our podcast begins in a moment after this brief word. Hello, inclusionists. Now, what comes to mind when I say that word inclusionist? Or how about if I say that we should all think inclusive? Well, we get to all of that on Think Inclusive, the podcast that brings you the latest insights and strategies for creating more inclusive and equitable learning environments for all learners. Join me, Tim Viegas, from the Maryland Coalition for Inclusive Education, as I have conversations with thought leaders and experts in the field of inclusive education and disability justice. Learn from their stories, insights, and experiences about what inclusion looks like in the real world and how you can make it happen in your own context. Whether you're an educator, a parent, a student, or an ally, this show is for you if you believe every child deserves to belong, participate, and thrive in their learning environment. Subscribe to Think Inclusive on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, or on your favorite podcast app and join the conversation. This series is presented by Humankind Public Radio in association with the BTS Center, funding provided by the Henry Luce Foundation. If you enjoy this program, be sure to leave us a kind review at iTunes and Stitcher. You're listening to the Spiritual Care Podcast. I'm David Freudberg. This time, Jailhouse Chaplains. see my role as providing a humanizing presence in what is an utterly dehumanizing environment, Um, that we we embody um, a humanizing presence for someone else who finds themselves objectified just because they're marked as a criminal or a felon and given a sentence. Paul Shof-Kozak oversees the chaplaincy department at the Essex County Correctional Facility in the small town of Middleton, Massachusetts, northeast of Boston. His work is interfaith. The inmates, numbering around 1,300, are charged with a range of offenses from driving without a license to murder. The United States incarcerates more people than any other nation in the world. Federal and state prisons and county jails hold around two million prisoners. Another five or so million people are on probation or parole. Paul had lived in Central America and then worked with immigrants in Washington, D.C. When later attending theology school in Boston, he started volunteering with inmates in 2009. Raised Roman Catholic and drawn to a social justice calling, For Paul, Sunday morning church has come to mean leading religious services in a tough environment behind prison walls. So what does it mean to provide a human presence in an otherwise cold institution? Well, we'll start with an actual space. So we want to offer a safe space that's physically safe. So if if you were to exist on a jail block here, the, the fear or the, the possibility of threat, the threat of violence is constant. Um, and so is, is there a fair bit of violence perpetrated uh, within this it, institution? Even if there's not actual, there, there, are, there is jail fighting and there are fights amongst inmates that happen here, but it's, it's not just the actual physical violence, it's the psychological violence 
of of you having to live in an environment where you just might be attacked or there's you can't trust the person who you're sharing a cell with um like what that does to us psycho-emotionally so we we want people to come to this building and into our chapel or into my office and feel safe so that's the first way in which we humanize someone is we provide them with psychological and emotional safety how do you do that how, how do you make them feel like it's okay kind of they can let their guard down talking with you well one way is is we call them by their name <laughs> or we call them by the name that they wish to be called um, not a last name um, not a nickname that they've been given um, not a an identity that they've claimed or that someone's projected onto them, but a name that they wish to be called, a name that a parent or a loved one might give them. So that's the first thing. We use language of invitation. So we invite people to share. We invite people to tell their own stories. Uh, we don't coax or coerce or twist arms. Um, and these would be concepts that you learn in any type of pastoral care training program. Um, the last thing that we offer is we, we, we do provide affirmation, so a non-anxious and non-judgmental presence. So whatever is shared, positive, negative, or in between, is just accepted as such. So someone could share the emotional experience of being very angry and vengeful um, against someone in the street or against someone in here but we we let that feeling be expressed we give it permission conversely if someone is, is sharing joy and contentment we let that be stated when i came to jail for the first time in 2005 uh, that's when you know things started to kind of come unraveled for me. That's Joe Raitano, who's worked as a personal fitness trainer and says he loves people. I did some time in jail. It was just a pretrial, like a month or two. Joe told me he's been sober for eight months at the time of our recording and didn't start drinking till he was 26. But alcohol led to serious legal problems, including driving under the influence and disorderly conduct, which landed him in jail. When I came in here, I was instantly drawn to the uh, chaplaincy here I was it was almost like it called to me because I'd been raised Catholic so I felt like I had developed somewhat of a relationship with God but not quite the understanding that I needed to grow so once I was able to come down here and um, and see what they did for services I partook in the non-denominational Christian service the Protestant uh, I went to a couple of the Jewish uh, services as well Basically, I wanted to surround myself with spirituality in any way that I could. And can you explain why that became a strong impulse for you to want to surround yourself with spirituality? Well, my family history has had, we've had a, quite a few tragedies. You know, I lost um, a lot of my family members as a young boy. And the one thing that my family always had was their faith through it all. And I saw, out of those tragedies, I saw some pretty neat miracles, you know, of how people pulled through. My grandmother lost three children while she was still alive. One was my godmother, uh, and she had just beaten cancer, and she got hit and on her 18th birthday by a drunk driver. 
The second was her son, my Uncle Billy, and he was a Vietnam vet. Wonderful, wonderful guy. But like a lot of the Vietnam vets, he had a problem with drugs when he came back. Um, and he died very young, 45, which is my age now. <laughs> so, you know, but I saw my grandmother pull through and, and never lose faith, you know. Um, and that was on my mom's side. On my dad's side, my little cousin, she died of an overdose. Um, then two weeks later, her brother, the closest thing to a brother that I'd have ever had, and he, too, died of an overdose. It's a lot of tragedy. So addiction is addiction re- really does, a factor running through your family. Absolutely, yeah. Yeah, but, um, but my family has managed to pull through and, and keep faith. And, uh, you know, out of that, I did really learn to turn to God, even if I didn't understand him quite as well as I should just yet. posture of zen-like quietude is difficult to maintain in any setting, but Kathy Blackman of Seattle, ordained in a Zen Buddhist order in 1997, tries to bring that presence into local jails, where she conducts meditation groups for inmates. She was raised in a Quaker family in Philadelphia, so was familiar with the practice of sitting quietly. In the 1970s, Kathy studied with a Zen priest in Seattle and was attracted to the depth of meditation practice and the process of carrying that awareness into daily activities. As a long-standing volunteer commitment, she offers Zen teachings to inmates. People would say, oh, you're such a tiny little woman, you know, and you'd be going into a men's prison and aren't you frightened? Um, And I I was a little bit, because just because it was unknown, but when I began to go in and meet people and work with them, both the officers, the corrections officers and the inmates, all of that really kind of drops away because they're just people with the same kind of questions looking for the same kind of answers as anybody on the outside. A sense of peril drops away? That fear, which so often is tied into what we don't know, uh, it's not there for me. That doesn't mean that you don't take precautions. Of course, there's Uh, You're trained on a regular basis in what to look for in terms of uh, danger signs, any kind of escalating tensions. Um, If somebody looks like they may be out of control or getting to that point. So you're aware of all of that, but there's no more sense of fear about it than there would be for me walking down the street downtown, for example. And part of that was the, the fact that the people that I was meeting with were so grateful to have somebody coming in to meditate with them and to talk with them and that they hadn't been forgotten. Um, just that itself creates this very warm space. That they hadn't been forgotten. Yeah, that they hadn't been forgotten. Uh, Oftentimes, uh, when people are incarcerated, they don't have people on the outside that are coming uh, to visit them for a lot of reasons. There may be any number of reasons, but it's difficult. 
Um, and so they're looking for any kind of contact with the outside. And um, they're amazed that people will come in week after week after week, year after year, um, just to meet with them. One of the things that I noticed actually pretty early on when I started going into the prison, uh, particularly uh, the prison as opposed to the jail, which is a more transient population, but the, in the prisons, I thought there's a lot about this. This is similar to the monastic training I did, where there's a group of people all in a very confined space, not able to get out, not able to go do something else different than what they're supposed to be doing. The schedule is there and you don't have the independence in the monastery or in the prison to do something other than what's on the schedule. Um, so a lot of the same kind of emotional stuff comes up. And it's actually considered to be a part of the value of monastic training is you have no choice. You have to get along with that person even if they just drive you crazy. You have to figure out a way, and it's not about who's right or wrong about what to do. It's about you have to get along because you depend upon each other to get through the training. The same is true in the prison. And um, actually quite a number of the men in the group said that they had kind of come to that on their own, that if they handled it right, prison could be like a monastery for them, and that they could use the conditions of the prison to uh, sharpen their focus and really force them to uh, learn these things. Time spent behind bars does provide inmates at least the opportunity for self-reflection, a demanding skill for just about everyone regardless of the location. In part, it means an encounter with one's own mind and how we respond to the emotions and mental habits that can easily arise. There was one gentleman uh, that I had in one of the groups, huge guy, um, looked like a bouncer at a bar. I mean, that's kind of the impression he gave. And I, when I first met him, he, he was hugely angry all the time about everything, and, and pretty much anybody that said anything to him, he was unhappy about that. He was angry about that. And it was this huge revelation to him when he realized he had a choice when anger came up for him of how he worked with it. And he didn't realize that. He didn't realize that that was his choice. We had talked about it, and he just got this look on his face of, oh, my goodness, I don't have to be angry. Anger can come up, but I don't have to act on it. I don't have to feed it. I don't have to continue that. And so he started experimenting, he said, with people uh, that he would normally have yelled at. Instead, he'd, he'd say, hey, man, uh, tell me what's going on for you right now. People couldn't believe it. This guy that was always running around angry with a chip on his shoulder was instead uh, listening to people and trying to come understand where they came from. And he said after doing that for a while, he 
realized that there were all these people here that were in the prison that were really sweet and had similar feelings to him and had all sorts of things going on in their lives. And he was just happy to have found that. It was like a whole magic world that he didn't know existed beyond anger. And that stayed with him in a way that was really remarkable to see. You could kind of see the wheels turning. You could feel the energy come up and he'd kind of sit up straight and then he'd catch himself and take a deep breath and, and his face would change. It would, be, it would just relax and he'd say, wow, okay, yeah, not going to do that, not going to go there. What's become of this gentleman? As far as I know, he's still in that particular unit. feels really hard to be in such a challenging environment and try to find a kind of peaceful way to walk through it. What the men tell me is that if they're able to do it, it makes their life so much more pleasant because they're not carrying the weight of, of their own unhappiness and everybody else's on them that if they look at it differently we're all in this lifeboat together we all need to um, you know help each other out here it's a, it's just switches it around completely um, that doesn't mean it's easy in there by any means and to some degree I really like that because these folks are are dealing with very different issues than meditators on the outside are. The questions that people on the outside ask are, how do I fit meditation into my busy life? I don't get that kind of question from the men in the prison. What do they ask you? It's more like, um, this terrible thing is ripping my life apart. Please tell me how Buddhism addresses this. It's much more uh, life and death kind of questions. They know if, they, um, if they're angry all the time, they're going to get in fights and, and their life is at risk. We're exploring life in prison and how jailhouse chaplains can ease the journey and offer new meaning for inmates. You're listening to the Spiritual Care Podcast. I'm David Freudberg. To learn more and to access additional episodes of this podcast along with other resources, please visit spiritualcarepodcast.org. Here's Juan Espinal, age 40, currently incarcerated at the Essex County, Massachusetts Correctional Facility. I walked into the housing unit, and when that door slammed for the first time, and I knew that I wasn't going to get out of there. For two years, I wasn't going to be there. I'm like, <sighs> I mean, I, I, I opened myself and I called God. I'm like, God, if this is what you want me to do, I'm going to do it. Just give me the strength and the serenity to get through this because I can't do it by myself. And it must take a lot of strength to be able to find some serenity in a place like this. Yeah, it did take strength, but little by little you start getting the strength and you, you, you wake up and you're like, God is, really does exist. God is really working with me today. 
Juan's parents immigrated to the United States from the Dominican Republic. He was born here in nearby Salem, Massachusetts, where he attended high school and became a ramp agent for a major airline and later worked for a large utility. He got into a fight with his girlfriend that resulted in a sentence for assault and battery. Controlling his anger has posed a long-time challenge. Juan wants to close this chapter of his life. In this environment, it's easy to go down the wrong street because you're dealing with every type of life or every type of walk of people in society from well-educated to people that have no education. So knowing that my anger, three years ago, I would have probably been in the hole every day because I'm I'm not going to walk away from someone saying anything to me or talking back to, me, back to me or disrespecting me. Inmates end up in solitary for disciplinary reasons like violating jail policy or in some cases as protective custody. Now when I get mad or I get angry, I just say, just give me the strength and just walk away. And I'm starting to listen to myself and, and I realize that what, what my anger was and I think that as I grew closer to God, he helped me to realize because I asked him for that. That was the only thing I asked him for. God, if you can teach me anything, teach me how to control my anger. And little by little, I've noticed that I've, I can control him more and more. When a prisoner here finds himself in solitary, spiritual care from a chaplain can take on new meaning. Again, Chaplain Paul Shovkozak. I oversee all the entire chaplaincy department, so I have some administrative work that comes along with that. And then the rest of my job is doing pastoral care, so I'll, a couple days a week, go visit people in solitary confinement. Do you go into their cells and visit them there? Not into the cell. I stand at the door uh, and speak to them through the, uh, the crack in the door, which can be challenging. How, how large is the crack? It's a small crack, maybe a quarter of an inch. So you have to speak loudly. Um, and there's an absence of privacy, obviously. Um, Guards could be monitoring it. Not so much uh, correction staff, but you know, cells are right next to each other. They're, they're, they're contiguous. So, What is the reasoning behind preventing you from being in direct contact rather than through uh, a wall with a crack? Well, in acute situations, I could request to be in someone's actual presence. Um, but there, are, there, can be, there can be up to 119 people here at the, in the solitary confinement. So to, to, to make 119 <laughs> requests throughout the week, is, is, I'm, not, I'm limited with time. So does that directly constrain the quality of the contact and and spiritual intimacy that you might otherwise wish to attain? I'm sure it does, and I would be naive if I didn't believe it did. And from my experience now, we can still have quality pastoral conversations. So even if the person is isolated to their solitary confinement cell, if they encounter someone on the other end of the door who is non-threatening, who is disarming, who gives them permission to be them, their honest self, 
in 10 to 15 minutes, you know, we can have a profound conversation. Um, and that's not necessarily me passing a judgment on the conversations. It's for, from what they tell me and why uh, the men there asked me to come back. How large is the solitary confinement cell where they live? My guess is it would be like a nine by six or a nine by seven. There's, there's space for a bed and a desk and a toilet. Wow. And do they spend 24 hours a day there? Well, with the one hour of what's called rec, which in, with that includes making phone calls, uh, having a shower, I guess what would be standard for the, the use of solitary confinement in the country. For Paul Shof-Kozak, where spirit is leading him is an ongoing inquiry as he feels his way through the quest to provide care for inmates. Society often treats the prison population as a pariah. Few politicians, for example, will stand up for prisoners' rights. But chaplaincy requires a different approach to the inmates being cared for. What often impressed me about some of the men here and, and the women with whom I company is they they're honest about their sense of shame and guilt they're honest about the mistakes they make they're honest also about not being the faithful person they want to be and those are fears that I have myself I I hope and do my best to live out the Christian way and there are moments where I just might not. But as, as a person who's a professional chaplain, as a person who's on an ordination track, I don't always feel like it's okay for me to say, you know, I'm, maybe I'm not living in the most authentic way. But here in these relationships, in this environment, you know, there's, 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 no, there's less reason to hide. Because when safe spaces within the context of, of chaplaincy are created, you just are who you are in that moment, and that's embraced. So, for example, our leading question in all our, in every faith-sharing group is, how are you feeling in this moment? And someone, a few people begin to share. Inevitably, someone will ask me, so, Paul, how are you doing today? <laughs> I'm given permission to answer and I'm going to be heard. And I can't say that's always true in, of my friendships, <laughs> or I'm, I'm with someone in an environment and they really want to take the time to know how I am, or, or they want to really hear an honest response. Uh, but, but that can happen here. How easy is it for you to, to have faith in this environment? where everything, almost everything you have has been taken away. So you don't just lose your freedom, you might lose an identity you had through parenting, through a job. You might lose a job, you might lose housing, you might lose a vehicle. Uh, you might have family that forsake you. You might have friends that forsake you. So, so you're, you, know, you, you, are, you have a Job-like experience. 
and to walk with people who continue to show resilience and perseverance, who continue to hope uh, even when they're having dark, dark moments. It's, it's a profound learning experience for me. More from my conversation with Zen teacher Kathy Blackman in Seattle. Are there ways to handle anger and frustration that might well up that could flood somebody's mind, especially in a setting like a jail? When you look at the teachings of Buddhism, one of the largest segments of that teaching is on paying attention, mindfulness of what's going on in your body, your mind, um, and that includes watching mental events um, arise. So, so to really notice when your buttons have been pushed? Well, and notice every aspect of it. If possible, if we can notice when it's first arising. It's obviously much easier to deal with anger if, we, if it's just first arising. Uh, than if it's full-blown and out the gate and you're screaming at people, right? It's much harder to reel that in. And then be with the emotion without adding a storyline to it. Without blaming somebody for something blaming that's going on? Blaming ourselves or somebody else or telling a story about why it's happening. Oh, I always get angry when this comes up. You know, it may be beating ourselves up. Or why does he always do that? He knows it makes me angry or even just labeling the emotion as anger instead of paying attention to the more complex texture of it. Is there fear in there? Is there some sort of defensiveness in there? What's actually going on in there? Uh, oftentimes, and the men themselves have noticed this, is that anger is the most socially acceptable, particularly in prison, to uh, express strong emotions. But they may be fear, they may be sadness. It's just that anger comes across looking strong. You know, it's a very powerful emotion. Is that self-protective in a prison? It is. It can be, very much so. Yes. So there's this tricky kind of uh, ground that they walk there. But in some ways it makes it more alive for them because they, uh, there's more at risk. You know, they can't get away from people. If you're stuck in a cell with, uh, with your roommate and you're both angry about something, that's not real negotiable. I believe as inmates, a lot of us have almost a, uh, a survival instinct to put up walls around ourselves. Joe Raitano in the Essex County, Massachusetts jail. It's not the best thing to be showing your emotion in front of the other guys. People might mistake that for weakness and target you. I mean, the bottom line is not everyone here wants to seek a better life. Not everyone here wants to be rehabilitated. And if you show that you're vulnerable and emotional, um, sometimes you can make yourself a target. It's just a fact of being in jail. And is that widely understood among the guys who are incarcerated here? Absolutely. This, people don't normally show their emotion, which is why the chapel is such a safe place. You know, and, uh, and Paul was a really safe man to talk to about things. I was able to shed tears and not worry about what people would think. And it just it made me feel so welcome, and I know that that comes from God. I, I have such a, 
you know, it's not new either. My whole life I believed in God. In fact, I was angry at God for a while and didn't want anything to do with him when I was doing my time in jail uh, the first time. I What were you angry at? Why'd you let this happen? You know, why, why if you, you love me so much, and I, I read it and uh, I hear it, that uh, God's a forgiving God and all this, you know, but I, I came to realize that it saved me being put in jail for a period of time. It allowed me to slow down, take a look at what was causing me to turn to self-medicating with alcohol and try to work on that. Otherwise, being outside in the community, I may not give my undivided attention to my problem. When you're in here, you've got very a lot of time to take a look at what the problem is. Through the course of the jail, they have an anger management program called Alternative to Violence. I started doing that. Juan Espinal at the Essex County Correctional Facility. And then spiritually, I started asking God to give me strength and help. Even though before I was here, I was a devoted Catholic, but my I would leave church and hang my clothes and became the person that I was. So I walked in one day and I said to myself, he hasn't abandoned me, so why do I abandon him always? You felt that you abandoned God always? Yeah, because I would only I would only participate with him for an hour. I was in church, and then the moment I walked out of church to see you, you know, or the moment I needed to uh, give me some strength and some serenity, I was there for him. You know, I'm like, oh, now I need you, and it's like it's a two-way relationship. He needs me at times, and I need him at times. So I, we, through the nine months I've been here, I realized that I needed God in my life more than what I thought. It's interesting you say he needs you. God needs you. Because you, he, ser- he uses you to serve other people. And in, the, and, and in this environment, you notice that a lot because it's a rough environment in jail. You know, not everybody's happy when they walk in here. And by you saying hi to them or, you know, approaching them and offer them a soup or something to give them the strength, you see their smile. And then you start learning that you're doing God's will, what he wants you to be a a person of, of, of humility and help the poor or help anybody in need. You're listening to the Spiritual Care Podcast. I'm David Freudberg. Studio recording by Antonio Oliart Rose. Editorial assistance from Andrew Andresco, Kathy Graham, David Cruz, and Ken Rogers. Webmaster Brian K. Johnson. Special thanks to Noel Flatt and Tony Buck. The Spiritual Care Podcast is presented by Humankind Public Radio. To learn more and to access our other podcasts and related resources, please visit spiritualcarepodcast.org. That's spiritualcarepodcast.org. Thank you for listening. The executive producer is David Freudberg. Please subscribe to our free weekly podcast. The title is Humankind on Public Radio. You can find it at Apple Podcasts, Spotify, NPR One, and all major podcast services, as well as through our website. Again, the podcast title is Humankind on Public Radio.
And if you'd like to support our program, please visit humankindpodcast.org. And at the top, click on How You Can Help. Thank you.